I know some of you are wondering who in the heck I am. Is it on? Okay. I am not West Brasselton. He is the pastor of this church. He's out of town this week. I am his evil twin brother, East. <laughs> no, that's not true. I'm not part of his family. And I'm certainly a lot better looking than he is. He'll be back next week. Any of you that are visitors here tonight, come back. It'll, it'll be better next week. My name's Greg Grooms. I live in Austin, Texas. You don't know me either. I want to talk to you a little bit about another guy you don't know this morning, evening, whenever it is. Uh, have you ever heard of Augustus Montague, top lady? Not one single person. You ought to be ashamed. You just finished singing one of his hymns just a little while ago. He was an English minister, lived back in the 1700s. Best known, if he's known for anything, for writing this old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Yeah. Uh, when he wrote it originally, the first verse was a little different than the one we sang. First verse originally was, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Well, any of you ever write a poem, write a song, and then you keep tweaking the words because it's never exactly the way you want it to be, right? Well, he tweaked the words uh, just a couple of years before he died, and he died when he was 38. Uh, he changed the last line of the first verse from be of sin the double cure, keep me safe from wrath and make me pure. He changed it to cleanse me from its guilt and power. Now, I don't know why, because he didn't write about it. He didn't tell anybody. But I can guess the song as he wrote it originally wasn't saying enough. There was something else he wanted to say. Guilt is something that we Christians think we know, right? We understand guilt. There's a right and a wrong. We're wrong. It separates us from God. It, guilt works its way into our relationships with other, other people. In the end, if Jesus doesn't come back before then and make everything new, guilt is going to kill each one of us. The wages of sin is death. The scriptures say so. And Jesus on the cross destroyed guilt's power over us. That alone is worth celebrating here this evening. But we think at times that when we've dealt with guilt, we've dealt with sin. And the fact is, there's more to it than that. And there's a result more for us to celebrate this evening. You see, in Scripture, guilt and shame are not the same thing. Uh, what's the opposite of guilt? If someone's not guilty, he or she is innocent, right? Proverbs 17, 15, exactly. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. The opposite of guilty is innocent, but the opposite of shame, especially in the Scriptures, isn't innocent. In the Scriptures, the opposite of shame is honor and glory. Psalm 4, verse 2, how long, O man, will you turn my glory into shame. 
guilt and shame aren't the same thing, but they are alike in a lot of ways. And just like guilt has great power in our lives, shame does too. Sometimes it's power for good. Sometimes it can move us to repent of our sins. Sometimes shame can cause us to deny that we really are Christians, that Jesus is our Lord. Shame can be a powerful thing. This evening I want to talk a little bit about guilt and shame. I want to talk about the weird connection between guilt and shame and who your heroes are. And I want to talk about God's love. But before we do, let's pray together, please. God, our Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts and minds would be acceptable to you this evening. Please, Father, pour your Spirit out on us now. Our confidence as we approach your word this evening is not in our wisdom because we are not wise. It's not in our goodness because we are not good. It is in your promise that when we come seeking wisdom, your Spirit will teach us. Teach us, I pray, how to live free from the power of sin and shame. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at four questions briefly. First, who your heroes are. Then, what can I do about my shame? Then, lastly, what God has done about my shame. But before this, a little more basic question, any of them. What's the difference between guilt and shame? As I said just a moment ago, they're similar, but they're not related. There are at least three possible relationships between guilt and shame. Guilt and shame, first of all, can go hand in hand. I can be guilty and feel ashamed because of it. You see this in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says that after God created Adam and Eve, they were naked, but they felt no shame. This is a world without sin, right? And nudity is not a problem for anybody in that setting at all. But in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve, what's the first thing that they do? Remember? They make clothes <laughs> for themselves out of leaves. You ever wonder why that's the thing that they did? It wasn't because God was offended by their nakedness. He had made their bodies, after all, didn't bother him in the least. They put on clothes because they offended themselves. They no longer felt acceptable the way that they were. Their guilt had made them ashamed. Works the same for me. Sometimes I feel ashamed because I am guilty. Uh, at other times, guilt and shame can really be at odds <laughs> with one another. Uh, no clearer example of this, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. 
But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter loved Jesus. He loved him that night. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus sits down with Peter and asks him three times, do you love me? Just like Peter denied him three times. And the last time he asked him, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You're omniscient. You know that I love you. Peter really loved Jesus. But that night, in the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus was on trial, Peter was also ashamed of him and afraid. I can imagine how he felt. <laughs> At age 24, my co-workers discovered, much to their surprise and their shock, that I was still a virgin. And they took it upon themselves to correct this sad state of affairs. They failed. But they did succeed in making me feel ashamed of something that I should have been proud of, being a virgin. Shame and guilt don't always go hand in hand. For me and for Peter, sometimes my shame says, do it even when my guilt is saying, don't. At other times, guilt and shame can exist completely independently of one another. We can be guilty and not feel any shame about it at all. This, unfortunately, was a problem of God's people throughout history. In the Old Testament, the prophets talk about it over and over and over again. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, God says through Jeremiah, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. None of us have that problem, do we? Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. None of us have that problem either, do we? They dress the wounds of my people as if they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. Here, God condemns his people not just for being guilty, but for being guilty and not being ashamed of it. The opposite of this, unfortunately, often is a common problem too. I can feel ashamed of things that have no guilt attached to them at all. You know how this works. You know. I'm ashamed of my body. My body is too tall. My body is too short. My body is too fat. My body is too thin. I'm ashamed of my looks. My nose is too big. My nose is too small. My hair is what's left of it, too curly or too straight, depending on here. I can feel shame depending upon the situation I'm in about being too poor, if everybody around me has got a lot of money, 
are being too rich if everybody around me doesn't have any money at all in the end. I can even feel ashamed of telling a joke if nobody laughs or saying something serious when everybody laughs. It's strange. I tried years ago, lived in Switzerland for about eight years, to learn how to speak French. I wasn't very good at it. But I worked at it, right? And I thought I was making progress. And then one of my Swiss friends one day asked me if I was from Mexico. <laughs> now, I don't think she meant any disrespect to the good men and women of Mexico, but I don't think she meant to compliment my French accent either. We can and do feel ashamed of all sorts of things that have no guilt attached to them at all. Guilt and shame can go hand in hand. They can be at odds with one another. They can exist completely independently of one another. But in all of these situations, there are a few commonalities. What's the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is a legal thing. It's the way God looks at me. Shame is the way that I look at myself or the way other people look at me, especially with the feeling that I'm not acceptable the way that I am. And oddly, oddly, shame has a lot to do with who my heroes are. Now think about it for just a minute. Who are your heroes? Now I realize in my question has an assumption behind it that may not be true. My question assumes you actually have heroes and you may not. These two guys, James Patterson and Peter Kim, did a survey of American attitudes on all sorts of stuff years ago. Wrote it up called, a little book called The Day That Americans Told the Truth. And according to their findings, most Americans don't have any heroes at all. They say 70% of Americans now say that America has no more heroes. Why are there no more heroes today? There are no heroes because we have ceased to believe in anything strongly enough to be impressed by its attainment. You understand? You've got to believe in something in order to have a hero, and we don't anymore. You go back just a little while in history, and that wasn't the case at all. Everybody had a hero. The relationship between Athens, Greece, the ancient city, and its founder, at least in mythology, is a good example of this. According to mythology, the city of Athens was founded by the goddess Athena. Athena was the goddess of wisdom. And not coincidentally, the most distinguished citizen of the city of Athens was a philosopher, of course. Because the most important thing to the Athenians was wisdom. And Athena embodied that for them. The relationship, the word that's used in Greek to describe the relationship between a a Athena and Athens is that Athena was Athens' archegos. Now, best translation in modern English is she was their hero. She was the embodiment of what was important to them. Same thing is true for us. If we have heroes, they show what's important to us. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the word archegos is used to describe Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The word that the 
NIV translates author, the ESV translates founder, I think better could be translated hero. Jesus is our hero, the perfecter of our faith. He is a living embodiment of who we are to aspire to be, at least in theory. Unfortunately, it's possible, even for Christians, to have wrong heroes, not only people who are not like Jesus, but really not like Jesus. And when we do, it's not only wrong, it creates all sorts of problems for us practically in this area of shame. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Most of us do a pretty good job of explaining the difference between right and wrong. If rooted in the character of God, what he approves of is good, what he disapproves of is bad. Ten Commandments, nice explanation here in the end. We know what's moral. Still, many of us doing a really poor job of choosing who our heroes are. We adopt no heroes or the same heroes that everybody else in our culture does. Athletes, movie stars, rock musicians, people on Wall Street, whatever. And when we do, when our morals and our heroes don't fit together well, uh, we get caught between a rock and a hard place in all sorts of practical ways. Let me explain what I mean. And you ever see an old movie back in the 80s? Ah, Wall Street. I hate it when all of my cultural references are out of date. M Michael Douglas played uh, big broker on Wall Street, right? And there's a young guy who's trying to climb his way up the ladder, and he gets the job with the hot broker, one he never expected to get. Didn't know that the way that Michael Douglas was making so much money was taking small, profitable companies, buying them, and then liquidating them completely. And Michael Douglas acquires the airline that his father works for and wants to destroy it in order to make money. Now, his shame is saying, if I bail out here, I'm going to be a loser for the rest of my life. I can't spoil this. But his guilt is saying at the same time, if I do what's wrong, I'm not only guilty of sin, I'm destroying my father. So we look at situations like this and think the way we solve the problem is to have good moral heroes, right? Not people like Michael Douglas. Unfortunately, that doesn't solve the problem either. Uh, we'll choose LeBron James instead of Kobe Bryant. Now, I realize some of you don't like LeBron James. He is a good family man, whether you like his basketball or not. He's faithful to his wife in a way that Kobe Bryant, unfortunately, is not. Now, I've got problems with my hero, even if my hero is LeBron James. Because, you see, no matter how hard I work on my jump shot, no matter how hard I try to get more lift, I'm never going to be able to play basketball like him. I'm old. And even when I wasn't old, I wasn't a great athlete. The high school football team I used to play with, we said that our unofficial motto was, we may be little, but we're slow. <laughs> uh -huh. 
the sad fact of us is the heroes that we adopt from the world, we can't be like. No matter how hard we try, even if they are good people. You understand? That's why part of the solution that scriptures call us to in dealing with shame is to change our heroes. Jesus is to be our hero, our archegos. Because trying to be like him is different than trying to be like LeBron James. You understand? You wonder what it's like? The writer of Hebrews gives us a clue in chapter 13, verse 7. He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The world is not full of Christ-like men and women, unfortunately. But they aren't endangered species either. And when you find one, you should make him or her your hero. You should try to imitate them. Like the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Following the example of Christ doesn't mean that you don't have a job, that you don't have a wife or a husband, or that you don't have a house, even though Jesus had none of those things. That's not what it's about. It means forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Being humble because Christ himself was humble. Being generous with your money because Christ became poor in order to make you rich. It means loving one another as God in Christ has loved us. And as hard as those things are to do, they're not like trying to be like LeBron James. Because not only by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit can you grow in the image and likeness of Christ in every area. The Scriptures tell us that God is working in all things to make you more like Him. And one day you will be. But that's not all. God Himself has done something else about our problem with shame. Who are the people that it's easiest to be ashamed of? Family. You don't get to choose your own family now, don't you? I met my wife 30-something years ago in Switzerland. We got married over there, and then I brought her back to Alabama to meet my family, right? (laughs) We got invited to dinner by my Uncle Ernest, Uncle Ern. Uncle Ern was 92 years old. And when my new wife walked in the door of his house, his first words to her were not, good evening, my name is Ernest Grooms, welcome to the family, it's a pleasure to meet you. His first words were, do you know what's wrong with the world? And she said, what's that, Mr. Grooms? And he said, black people and women. And then he he didn't use the word black people. He said another phrase that I'm not going to use. It's too offensive. But he went on to explain why, in his opinion, black people and women were the problem of the world. And I sat there beside him and said, dear Lord, She's going to scream and run away, and I'm never going to see her again in my life. (laughs) Uh, I was ashamed of my uncle. 
I was ashamed of my family. I wanted to tell my wife, you know, I'm not really related to these people. They found me in a basket one morning on the doorstep, and they raised me up. I'm not really related to them at all. It's easy to think that God has to feel the same way about me that I feel about my Uncle Ernest. I'm at least as big a moral failure as he is. He says, yeah, i got to forgive you. Jesus did the cross thing after all. But I don't have to associate with you much, and I'm certainly not very proud of you. Which makes the truth of the matter all the more amazing. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, God says, both the one who makes men holy, that is Jesus, and those who are being made holy, that's us, are of the same family. And Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus not only forgives us our sins, he's not ashamed of us. He doesn't hesitate to know, to announce, yes, I'm his brother. God's solution to guilt and to shame is that we come to him in repentance, confessing our sin, trusting in his grace and mercy, and then living our lives every moment, remembering that we are forgiven and that he loves us. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for the freedom that is ours in Christ, the freedom from guilt that we can stand before you and know that despite our sin, you have acquitted us because of the work of our brother, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would cleanse us not only from sin's guilt, but from its power. You would help us to be rooted and grounded not only in your grace, but in your love so that when we look at ourselves and when we look at one another, we can have the confidence that your love, the love of the King of the universe, is ours, and we have nothing to be ashamed of. Teach us, I pray, Father, to live in that freedom and live in that hope, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all stand, sing with us.